Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well done. Good job. Right here. Oh, so good to be in the house of God. It's so good to hear uh, the word of God out of the mouths of kiddos in our church. Um, I just want to say it's, this is really important for us to have these family services. I had somebody ask me this weekend, they said, you know, we've recruited all those volunteers. Like, why are we doing, what, 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 what's the, we're doing this a few times a year because we really think it's important for you as an adult to see kids in worship. And it's really important for kids to see adults in worship, to be the family of God together. And so this is actually a, a commitment to us. I, I want to celebrate what the Lord has done. Uh, we have gone under Katie Osi, our kids pastor, her leadership from 120 volunteers to 190 volunteers. We have more people serving. Yeah. Um, we have more people serving in kids ministry than we ever have in the life of our church. And that's because of you guys. But I'm just going to tell you, if we had 400 volunteers, which we don't need, uh, we would still do these family services a few times a year because we just think it's so important for us to remember, like that song said, that we're one body, we're one family, and that's young and old, that's male and female. Um, that means we belong to one another. Um, I, I will also say, uh, I never thought I would hear the term spleen in church um, outside of a sermon illustration from Nate, who's over there in the back. Uh, but that, that just hits the nail on the head. We're, we're, we're one body. We need, we need one another. We need you kids in, in this room. We're so thankful. Um, two things before, before we get into it. Number one, uh, our Trinity report is available. And so if we could put that slide up, there is a link there and a QR code. I would encourage you if you haven't done so to download the report and read it. It is amazing. Things like 600 people in neighborhood groups in this church, over 400 people, you serving to set the table, to show ownership and to create a sense of place here for people who come into the life of our church. 15 balls hit over the fence during Trinity softball this last year. Uh, thousands of bagels cut. It's a really fun report that runs from like critical stuff to just fun things to know. Y'all, there is so much life happening in this church. It is a joyous time for us as a community. And this report uh, from the quotes to the facts to the figures, I think you're going to see all that life and really be able to celebrate. And I hope you'll just get your phone out right now, click that QR code save it for later and give that thing a read. I think it's just really, really encouraging and inspiring that we're a part of a body of believers that is like worshiping together, giving away tons of money, seeing people in, enjoy and join into the life and the, the ministry of our church. And connected to that, speaking of joy, um, our staff, I wanna show this little picture. We just came back from a retreat this week. Um, we spent two days in the mountains at Sharp Top, uh, Young Life Camp, where we do our annual spring retreat. And I'm just gonna tell you, um, 
It was so awesome. I stand in front of you today and I just wanna say y'all are in really, really good hands. We have an amazing group of men and women who not only love Jesus and love one another, but love this church. Uh, there was so much life in our time together and I just feel so hopeful for what God is doing and where he's taking our church. And y'all, the, the good things that are happening in this church, um, so many of those things are being initiated by this group and sustained by you. Uh, it takes a family. We're a body. And I just want to honor our staff. Um, what an amazing group of people. Um, yeah. Several of whom have COVID now. So be careful who you hug. <laughs> Apparently COVID's still a thing. Nate promised me it was over and now it's maybe not over. I don't know. Uh, before we, before we get into the main thing that I want to share, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say four things to you that I stole completely from N.T. Wright. So if you have been around Trinity for more than five minutes, you know that N.T. Wright, who is a bishop in the Church of England, a New Testament scholar, is one of our favorites around here. So he's preaching the sermon today through, through me and my reading of him. But before we get into what, what he says, what I think Jesus is getting at about you being made in the image of God, um, I want to say something about Jesus uh, Jesus is super smart. And a lot of times we, I mean, you hear me say that, you're like, oh yeah, of course, like Jesus smart, that, 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 that fits. Uh, but we don't, I don't think we think about how smart he is enough. Uh, we think about his miracles, we think about the cross, we think about the resurrection, all like massively important things about Jesus. But what we don't often think of is how Jesus can teach us to be the kinds of people that we're meant to be, even in difficult conversations. And so what we see in the passage that Anna read is a group of people who are trying to trap Jesus. Jesus is not actually in a very safe place in this conversation. They're looking to trap him. They think he is uh, an insurrectionist. They think he wants to overthrow Rome. So they ask him a question about taxes because they either want to make him lie or get him to say, I don't think you should pay taxes. And then he would be on the radar screen for Rome. So Jesus is actually in a trap conversation here. And what we see in Jesus that I love is that Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't fall into the trap. And for each and every one of us, there are times in life where you wish that you could unsay something you said or undo something you did, where you rushed into a space and then realize later that it's really hard to reel back. And I just love the fact that when Jesus was in spaces where he could have totally been trapped, he wasn't trapped. He knew what was happening around him. And a part of the invitation for each and every one of us as we choose to live our lives as humans in the way of Jesus is that he wants you to learn. Viktor Frankl, one of my favorite thinkers, he wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning. If you're gonna read like one book in the fall, that would be a really good one to read, like 120 pages of life-changing um, storytelling from his time at Auschwitz and um, being in the concentration camps. And Viktor Frankl said this, and Jesus holds this 100%, that between stimulus and response, so between the stuff that happens and how you respond, there is a space. And in that space, Frankl says, that is where our freedom lives. Think about the word deliberation. It means, what's the root of that word? Freedom, liberty. That when we are receptors of stimulus, and we are in this story, Jesus was receiving stimulus. People were trying to trap him, to bait him. 
but he made the most of the space. And in that space, he was free. He was able to respond in accordance and in alignment with the will of God. That's what God wants for each and every one of us. However, we live in a highly reactive world as highly reactive people. So we say things and we do things. I once had a mentor who told me, Chris, there are times in life where there's not much you can say to make a thing better, but if you're not careful, you can make it a lot worse. And a lot of us, we live trying to reel back things we've said or done. What Jesus does and what he teaches us is how to hold that space and know what's really going on and to respond and to live as the people of God who live with purpose and intentionality. And I think he has so much to teach us in that respect. So let's look at what he says. Um, this is not a sermon about whether you should pay taxes or not. I was bummed. I mean, it was family service, really looking forward to preaching a little family type sermon. And then I opened up the text. I was like, it's about taxes. Like this is going to be tough. So maybe the gift I can give you kids is that this will be a little shorter than normal. Um, but we're going to look at what Jesus says. When Jesus says, um, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, he's saying something really important. And actually, N.T. Wright in his book, Simply Christian, says essentially, you and me, we all bear the image of God. Kids, down in our kids' space, we have a piece of art that you made at kids' camp with your handprints all over it. And it says, Imago Dei, which is a fancy old way of saying you, me, we are made in the image of God. And so what Jesus is saying in this moment when they try to trap him is he says, let's look at the money. And Caesar's face was on the money. And he's saying, well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But then when Jesus says, give to God that which belongs to God, he's actually saying he thinks you look like God. He's not saying you're perfect. He's not saying you're pure. Anyone who thinks kids are pure and perfect just never spent any time with them. Um, he's not saying you're pristine. He's not saying we get it right all the time, but what he is saying is you are made in God's image. You look like God. And the, the, the things that N.T. That Wright says based on that statement from Jesus that I'm about to share with you have been a massive encouragement in my own life. They have helped me see that I am and you are a creature of immense dignity that we do in fact reflect the likeness of God, which in short, y'all, that means we matter. That means that the most mature of us and the least mature of us, it means even when we're rotten or we make bad decisions, that through all of that brokenness, there's still this reflection of who God is. We all carry in our person the fingerprints of God. And I believe that that should change the way that we treat one another. I think it should change the way we think about one another. It should change the way we think about ourselves, our enemies. And so I hope today at the very least to give you some food for thought on why you matter and why your enemies matter. Why people matter. Because people, according to Jesus, look like God. People don't have to be perfect to look like God. I remember the first time I thought about this idea of like, I look like God. I thought, well, I hope he's better looking than me for sure. And the truth is he is. None of us look like God perfectly, but through all the cracks, through all the brokenness, through even our sin, through that shines 
the image of God. And I believe that at the very least, what Jesus is saying here is you matter. So putting your life in play, putting your life at the service of God is actually an act of worship that because you matter, God wants to lay claim to your life. We're made in the image of God. So I wanna put all four of these things up. In his book, Simply Christian, N.T. Wright says this, let's just put all four of them up, that we bear in our body and in our lives, the image of God, at least in these four ways. We have an instinctual longing for justice, an inborn appreciation of beauty, a quest for authentic spirituality, and a search for meaningful relationships. I'm gonna spend the next few moments unpacking why these things should not be in us, why the way the world works should have killed our desire for justice, beauty, spirituality, and relationships, and yet it doesn't. These are persistent commitments that are instinctual in you and in people. So first, let's hold the idea of justice. Go to any playground in the world and you will hear kids saying something about things not being fair. We seem to instinctively know, imperfectly apply, but instinctively know that there is such a thing as right and fair and just. Now we rarely apply it correctly. And yet what N.T. Wright says in his book is that your innate commitment to the idea of justice is an indicator that you bear in your person the image and likeness and character of God. We know when we look at what's happening in the Middle East that this isn't right. We know that there is deep brokenness and hard, painful stuff at play. And we don't have the answer for it, but we know that something isn't just. There's so much injustice in the world. There's so much brokenness in the world. And yet we long for it. We want things to be right. We want things to be just. We want things to be equitable. We want things to be like they're meant to be. And yet every single data point that we can find tells us that justice is elusive. That oppressed people don't win. That whistleblowers aren't always safe. That people living on the margins don't always get what they should have or don't always be, they're not always heard in ways that they should be heard. And yet we long for these things. And you'd think that if we were wise, we'd give up on the idea of justice, that we would give up on the idea of rightness, but we don't. Sure, we have our moments where we're cynical or we're fatalistic, but then something else happens in the world and we think that isn't the way it ought to be. Or something happens in our own life and we think that isn't the way it ought to be. I believe that your instinctual longing for justice, whether you're a kid or a grown-up, is an indicator of the fact that you look like God. We long for things to be right. We don't know what the answer is. TikTok's not gonna tell you what the answer is. But we long for things to be the way that they should be, whatever that means. And despite all the failures, all the oppression, all the brokenness, all the imbalances, we still hold out hope for something like justice. Number two, we have an inborn appreciation of beauty. We love sunrises and sunsets. We love mountains and streams. We love pretty faces, pretty places, 
We love Jeeps. <laughs> We're drawn to beautiful things. And I think that one of the things that strikes me about this appreciation of beauty is that just like justice, we rarely get it right. Beauty fades. Faces sag. Sunsets give way to darkness. Beautiful days yield to stormy days. Just like justice, beauty is elusive. It, it, it falls through our hands and we do all kinds of things in an effort to try to manufacture beauty and they're not always very successful. We try to control beauty. We try to make it last and it just doesn't last. Beauty's elusive and yet we're still drawn to it. There's something about the grandeur of the beauty of the diversity in the body of Christ and in the created world. Like Laura was singing from ladybugs to the clouds. Nature speaks to us of a God who did things not because he had to, but because he wanted to. There's something about God that is drawn to and creates beauty. And the parts of you that are drawn to beauty and your sin gets in the way. Beauty then gets hijacked in ways that are really unhealthy and really dangerous. But the desire for beauty in the first place is because you bear in your person the marks of the character and nature of God. God is frivolous in his creation of beauty. Have you ever pulled a rainbow trout out of a stream and seen the way the sun hits it? Have you ever walked over the, the crest of a of a valley or a, a, a ridge in Colorado and seen a field of wildflowers, that's frivolous. That, that's not because God had to do that. He just wanted to do it. We are drawn to beauty because God is a creator of beauty. And I just want you, the next time your, your breath is taken away, the next time you notice something and you think, oh my gosh, I want you to say, I care about that. I am drawn to that because I look like God. God loves beauty and he pulls you to beauty. Now we don't do it perfectly. And beauty isn't permanent, but boy, do we love it when we encounter it. I'm reading this book by a guy named Michael Easter, which is like one of the coolest last names ever, called The Comfort Crisis. And he tells this story in The Comfort Crisis about how there has been a kind of movement in Japan over the last number of years where people with hypertension or certain struggles are taken by bus out of the massive cities and they just take them out into the forest and have them wander around for a couple of hours. And they call it forest bathing. And they're not like finding bodies of water and bathing in the forest. They're literally walking around in creation and letting creation bathe them. And they're seeing like temporary benefits that then become at times like lasting benefits of blood pressure going down, a sense of wellness and orientation because people are simply just walking in creation. Now, here's one of the things that Michael says based on some of the data. When people go into places like that with their phones, the benefits are not there. Isn't that interesting? Because when you've got your phone with you all the time, you're never really anywhere you are. You're always somewhere else kind of in between. And so what I want to say to you is that you don't have to find a field of wildflowers on the backside of a ridge near the Continental Divide in Colorado to experience 
the beauty and the power and the restoration, the recreation of beauty. You can go sit under a tree in a park, in a city and turn your phone off and notice trees. Like when I see a tree that I think is just beautiful, I just am in, in this space of going, I really appreciate this. And I know God that when you made this, you really appreciated this. So we get to appreciate it together. And when I notice, when I stop and put my phone away and I begin to let myself be forest bathed, I'm living and looking and acting like God. I'm living into the image of God. So despite all of the elusive and leaky nature of our pursuit of beauty, we are drawn to beauty. And I just wanna say, God put it in you. Live it as redemptively as possible. Connected to that, we are drawn to authentic spirituality. You're here. The weather is great. You could be doing something else. And yet we come into places like this because for all of us in one way or another, there's this desire to belong to something transcendent, to something bigger than us. And sometimes we don't attach that to God. So we just like follow a sports team. And people who follow sports teams, myself included, we're looking for something transcendent. We're looking for like something bigger than us. All of that points to spirituality. There's an innate desire in people to belong to something, to find someone outside themselves that would orient them in a grand scheme of things. It's in you because it's in God. You're made in the image of God. And yet, just like with justice and, and beauty, we find spirituality elusive. We don't have all the answers that we want. People hurt us in spiritual spaces. We disappoint ourselves as we quest for spirituality. And yet we still long for something. Even when we're frustrated, even when we feel afraid, even when we feel discouraged and defeated, there's something in us that calls us to look up and to look out beyond ourselves. Again, Frankel says, a person with a why, a purpose, can endure almost any what circumstances. We long for authentic spirituality. And yet, like water, it flows through our hands. It's hard to hold it. It's hard to control it. It's hard to capture it. But we keep coming back. There's a reason why self-help books and mystical books continue to fill our shelves. It's because there's something out there pushing us to explore. And we do it just like with justice and beauty and all kinds of ways that are counterproductive, that are not helpful. But the fact that you keep coming back, I would submit to you is because you are bearing in your person, in this instinctual desire, the image of God, the fingerprints of a creator, God Almighty. And finally, we search for meaningful relationships. And we said this a few weeks ago, I think Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered, I show up because he knows he's got to break up a fight. We're not good at relationships. We want our will. And when our will is thwarted, we get angry and we say things and we do things and we hurt one another. Relationships are hard, y'all. And yet we keep coming back. You think we'd learn our lesson. You think we would figure out because of all the data, of all the broken relationships, you think we would just say, you know what? I'm just gonna be an isolated entity. I'm gonna do this all by myself. And yet we keep coming back. We live in a lonely and fragmented and isolated world. We live in a world that 
pushes us further and further from one another. I mean, y'all, it's fascinating to me that these things which seemingly connect us actually have worked to disconnect us more than ever before. And I'm not an anti-phone person. I just think we've got to recognize that there's a lot working against true and authentic community. One of our core commitments is to make space for meaning and reconciliation in our relationships. And that's one of the things that we are putting as a kind of one of our five core commitments for which we will be accountable to live into and lean into and equip you. Because we think that because God is inherently relational, you and me are desirous of relationships, but we have to learn how to do them. We've got to learn how to become the kinds of people who can image God, not just in our desire, but in the way that we approach relationships. God made you for relationship. And yet, like water flowing through my fingers, relationships are elusive. Relationships are painful. Relationships are hard. We don't get any of these things right. But we come back to the well again and again and again because we were made in the image of God. You were made in God's image. And that should remind you that you matter. It should also remind you that your enemies matter. That everyone, all of us, in some way or another, have some of the marks of God's character that flow through us, even if it's muted and broken and at times warped. These are the fingerprints of God and they're on each and every one of us. Call them out in your kids if you're a parent. Call them out in your friends. Call them out in your enemies. It humanizes us when we can see that despite all of our differences that we were all made in the image of God. Let's look at this Rublev icon. So this is one of the kind of defining images for us um, as a church and Andrei Rublev was a 15th century iconographer in Russia. And he drew this picture. He painted this painting to depict Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And some scholars suggest this is the most theologically perfect art ever conceived. I don't know how you decide that, but I'm totally on board. Um, I think it's amazing. I've got it tattooed on the inside of my arm. It's all over the church. So we're, we're big Rublev fans. We're big Trinity icon fans. Here's what I love about this. Justice, beauty, spirituality, relationships. This is what God looks like. God is not a judge behind a desk with a gavel and a fluffy weird wig. God is not a principal behind closed doors that you just think no news is good news. Um, the church in her wisdom has told us that God looks like three persons in perfect harmony celebrating an endless feast where there is room for you to approach the table. I mean, the wisdom in the beauty of who God is, is an inviting wisdom. So we just see that we bear in our bodies and in our person, the marks of the character and nature of God. And then God looks at us and says, we are relational. We are beautiful. We are just. And we want you to move toward us. We want you to be a part of what some have called the economy of the Holy Trinity. You are God's handiwork. Your kids are God's handiwork. And we mess it up so much, and yet we still bear in our person the marks of the character and nature of God. So the question remains, what does that mean? 
For starters, I think it means that you matter. I think it means that even small, 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 small children matter. It means that we're creatures of immeasurable worth and power and dignity. So here's what I want you to do for a few moments before we come to communion. I want you to consider how you reflect the image of God. And for some of you, this may be really hard. Just the thought of saying like, oh, there's a thing in me that is imperfectly expressed and yet it, it looks like God. I think that for many of us, there's an invitation to press through that barrier to actually begin to name where you look like God and to celebrate it, to rejoice in it. So we're gonna be still just for a moment and then we're gonna come to this communion table. Let's think about how we look like God and give him thanks.